District of Conservation is sponsored by CFACT. To learn more about our sponsor, head over to CFACT.org. Thank you so much for listening to the show. Happy Fall Equinox, everyone. I am your host, Gabriella Hoffman. Thank you so much for tuning to the podcast. On this special Wednesday episode, I have some stories to unpack for you all, and I will talk a little bit about my upcoming webinar with the Claire Booth Luce Center for Conservative Women, centering around the topic, Conservation is Conservative. I will first talk about that, then we'll move into some stories, but there is a lot to unpack relating to Grey Wolf delisting, BLM moving back east, the controversy surrounding that, whether or not national parks are safe, and I'll top it off with my thoughts on Clean Energy Week and the energy sources we should be touting, and I completely overlooked a review we got last month from a person by the name of Pissin' Up Wind, one of the best conservation shooting outdoor podcasts going. Keep up the great work. Thank you so much for that, and if you haven't already, go leave some reviews. For some reason, Anchor has been screwing up analytics. I just got an update. Anchor is my hosting platform, so it looks like more people are listening to the podcast, which is great. I know in the fall time, things start to pick up because of the summer slump, but grateful to all of you who are new, returning, curious, interested, or you just kind of have a hate listen because I know some people listen, don't like my politics, and they're just curious to see if I say something crazy given my political orientation, but I try to be even-keeled as a conservative. I want to know what you guys think about these subjects. Please let me know on social media and also in reviews. Can political conservatism and conservation coexist? I'm here to tell you the answer is a resounding yes. I'm going to be exploring this subject more or this confluence of these two supposedly clashing ideals in an upcoming webinar I'm doing with the Claire Booth Luce Center for Conservative Women this Friday, September 24th at 1 p.m. Eastern. And you are more than welcome to join. This is a webinar format. I'm delivering it remotely. And there is a way for you to register over Zoom. And I would love for any and all who are interested to join in at that time frame. I will be including all the details in the show notes. But in their announcement email for this, Clearbooth Loose Center for Conservative Women said this, too often the issues of conservation and the environment are considered only a part of the liberal agenda. We believe that all Americans should be caretakers of their environment. Conservatives at heart love their land and treat it with great respect. We should not abdicate this issue to the left. We have excellent ideas and policies to promote, ideas that preserve our freedom and the beauty of our nation. Engaging in all spheres of policy is how we take back our country for the freedom and beauty it has to offer for each of us. And they explain who I am. I won't read and bore you guys with my background, but basically they say that this webinar with me, Gabriella Hoffman, will show you how conservation is a conservative value. She will define terms and review areas where conservatives have pushed for policies that promote excellent conservation strategies. You will walk away informed and with a understanding of how you can get involved in preserving our freedom and our beautiful country. Sign up today. So three points I want to hone in on, and I'm going to be putting this out in video format because Instagram Reels is a great way to engage people in this manner. So I'm going to hone in on three points, I think three selling points for why you should join us on this webinar Friday at 1 p.m. Eastern, why conservation is aligned with conservatism. I'm going to break down exactly why that's the case. Number two, what the left gets wrong about conservation. I've talked at length here on the podcast about how conservation and preservation are lumped into the same category. There are two categorical distinctions between those two philosophies or strains of environmentalism. I'm going to break down what that is and why 
the left, political left, environmental left gets that wrong. And of course, I can't just be talking about bad things or how to repel ideas. I need to have a CTA, a call to action. So I want to also propose to viewers and attendees how conservatives and everyone, true conservationists, you don't have to be a conservative, can win on advancing true conservation in the environmental space. So how conservatives can win on environmentalism. So those are the three points you can expect from me. I promise it'll be worth your while. If you've never heard me speak, I try to be very facts-based, fun, and I'm going to limit my time talking and more so dedicate time to question and answer. So the presentation will probably run about 20, 25 minutes, and I'm going to have it open up for Q&A. So please join us. Details in link show notes, and I hope you can join us. We have some developments on the Gray Wolf delisting saga, and this is something I'm going to be focusing on for Young Voices very soon. I have just got a lot of stuff with work coming up, so I'm a little delayed in responding to this. But according to a new update from the Fish and Wildlife Service, not surprisingly, we are seeing Sierra Club, Natural Resources Defense Council, and other radical environmental groups filing petitions to review and relist the gray wolf in the western United States as, again, a threatened or endangered species under the Endangered Species Act. And the service finds that the petitions present substantial, credible information indicating that a listing action may be warranted and will initiate a comprehensive status review of the gray wolf in the western United States. On June 1st, 2021, and I'm reading from the Fish and Wildlife Service Bulletin, the service received a petition to list the gray wolf northern Rocky Mountain distinct population segment, DPS, or a new western U.S. DPS as a threatened or endangered species under the ESA. The service received a second similar petition on July 29, 2021. The Federal Register Notice will serve as the 90-day finding for both petitions. The service finds that petitioners present substantial information that a potential increases in human-caused mortality may pose a threat to the gray wolf in the western United States. The service also finds the new regulatory mechanisms in Idaho and Montana may be inadequate to address this threat. Therefore, the service finds that gray wolves in the western United States may warrant listing. And this is in response to some of the hunting seasons that have been underway in Wisconsin and states out west. And certainly there are, you could debate whether or not those hunting seasons are excessive, but there has to be a hunt season in place. And again, you can debate, are they taking too many? Is it biologically sound? Things of that sort. So they want a substantial 90-day finding require only that the petitioner provide information that the proposed action may be warranted. Next steps for the service include an in-depth analysis reviews using the best available science and information to arrive at a 12-month finding on whether listing is warranted. If so, listing a species is done through a separate rulemaking process with public notice and comment. And they say that you can begin submitting comment on this on September 17th upon publication in the Federal Register. So you'll have 90 days in a petition review form to do this. It seems like these radical preservationists have nothing better to do than to interfere with science because the dictates of relisting and delisting make it so that they can increase their bottom line. These people have a livelihood based on suing and settle using the EAJA to litigate sue and keep these species in perpetuity on the Endangered Species Act without any sight of recovery because they're afraid that if you delist a species successfully and management goes back to the states, there's going to be hunting as a form of management and states will have discretion over this. It doesn't mean that the feds have nothing to do with this because the feds are still intertwined with the Pittman-Robertson Fund and all that type of stuff, but the states will be the key arbiters of management 
And for them, they say, well, they're going to be extirpated again from the ecosystem and the hunters are bloodthirsty, evil people, and we can't have this happen. But I want to present some findings to you from an unlikely source as to why the gray wolf is not endangered. I'm going to read for you guys a bulletin from former Fish and Wildlife Service Director Dan Ash, who is kind of a more preservationist person. And he, when he was outgoing Fish and Wildlife Service Director before Trump's administration took effect, he put a rule to ban lead tackle and bullets on Fish and Wildlife Service lands. And he is for gun control and for other things. But even he, of all people, said that the gray wolf is recovered. And from June 2013, he said this, Today, and for one reason, and one reason only, we were proposing to remove the gray wolf from the list of threatened and endangered species throughout the United States and Mexico. They are no longer in danger of extinction now or in the foreseeable future. Due to our steadfast commitment, gray wolves in the lower 48 now represent a 400-mile southern range extension of a vast contiguous wolf population that numbers more than 12,000 wolves in western Canada and about 65,000 wolves across Canada and Alaska. And they point to the number 6,000. Even in 2013, Dan Ash concluded, Obama's Fish and Wildlife Service director, mind you, one thing, though, is certain. It is no longer endangered or threatened with extinction. The ESA has done its job. Broader restoration of wolves is now possible. Indeed, it is likely. As we propose to move ESA protection, states like Washington and Oregon are managing expanding populations under protective state laws. And as in almost every aspect of our work, there is vigorous debate. Can a species be considered, quote, recovered, end quote, if it exists only in a portion of its former range, or if significant habitat is yet unoccupied, our answer is yes. And we don't need to look far for other examples. And so they had determined the threshold of recovery was 6,000 individuals. And that number stands even strong today. And like I said, this is Obama's Fish and Wildlife Service director concluding this. And also last administration in October, the Trump administration announced they had returned management and protection of gray wolves to states and tribes following successful recovery efforts. And if you guys didn't know this, the Trump administration actually recovered 13 imperiled species. No one talks about this. Very few people do. They say that they were despoilers of the land. They were horrible stewards of wildlife, things of that sort. But they actually successfully recovered and recommended that a listing of 13 species. That's pretty noteworthy. And in October 29th, 2020, Secretary Bernhardt announced that they would return management to the states. You can read this press release for yourself. And they're following precedent for this. This wasn't just a Trump administration decision. Even Obama's, like I said, administration, his interior, his Fish and Wildlife Service determined that the gray wolf was healthy. These are numbers guided by scientists who largely are holdovers across different administrations. They're largely nonpartisan individuals. They're very, very rooted in fundamentally following the science. And studies and evidence shows the gray wolf is recovered. Like I said, you may not like that states are going to be managing wolves. And I don't know for a fact if Montana is harvesting too many under their wolf program or if Wisconsin is doing that. There's kind of mixed reporting on that because a lot of people say, well, yes, the 280 wolves that were harvested, it's too much, or these are not in line with biological findings, and this was not the recommendation. But I don't think the DNR in Wisconsin would have recommended or allowed 280 wolves if it wasn't permitted. They would they would stop once that threshold is reached. The Usually when um, 
highly regulated hunt, from what I understand, when a highly regulated hunt is determined and that number is reached, the season usually gets closed even before that season ends. So yes, there will be some controversy surrounding wolf hunts. Their goal ultimately is to put listed species protections back on the wolves so that there is no management from the states, especially in the mode of a highly restricted hunt. And that what happens when you don't have those mechanisms in place. You're going to have state wildlife agencies kill more wolves than hunters would. You see this with grizzly bears. You see this with other predators. You see this in California, especially with the mountain lion, my home state. We have seen a lot of big cat mortality from rat poison than you would see from a highly regulated hunt. Same with grizzly bears. More grizzly bears are killed because of human bear conflicts that are far more extensive today had there been a managed hunt in place, I think the same will happen with gray wolves. If gray wolves are not managed, you're going to see more wolf-human conflicts. You're going to see more predation on livestock, and it's going to be utter chaos. So certainly a balance could be striked. I want to offer some reaction from Natural Resources Republicans and the Western Caucus Chair about this rule. House Committee on Natural Resources Ranking Member Bruce Westerman said of the initial reviews of two petitions, Once again, radical special interest groups have hijacked the ESA and are wasting taxpayer resources. Forcing agencies to conduct meaningless reviews to examine recovered species is not accomplishing any long-term goals when state wildlife experts are already managing caring for species local to their communities. It is also very disappointing that the Biden administration is caving to these groups and giving credence to these petitions instead of proactively working with states to actual recovery mechanisms. Absent political interference, this review will almost certainly show state management is more than adequate in preserving wolves across the West. Congressional Western Caucus Chairman Dan Newhouse said this statement as well. The gray wolf is an endangered species success story through partnerships Between states, local communities, tribes, private landowners, and the federal government, we have worked to restore gray wolf species throughout the western United States and celebrated their recovery by removing them from the endangered species list. Less than a month ago, the Biden administration upheld the Trump administration's delisting, allowing local species managers to continue their successful efforts. While it is disappointing, but not at all surprising, to see litigious environmental groups once again waste resources that could be used to aid species that are actually endangered, I look forward to the gray wolf's delisting being upheld as the best available science and comprehensive state and local management plans are reviewed. I also want to talk briefly about another interesting subject that is for some reason controversial, but if you work in conservation or you follow the politics of conservation closely, this really shouldn't be controversial. So it was just announced last week that the Department of Interior will restore its Washington, D.C. headquarters of the Bureau of Land Management, which is a very controversial agency. It doesn't have a good history with Western stakeholders, especially under Democratic administrations. And last administration, with bipartisan support, mind you, and with the blessing of Colorado's governor, Jared Polis, too, when he was also a congressman as well, they had moved the... BLM headquarters to Grand Junction, Colorado, which was seen as an ideal location to be closer to stakeholders out west because 90 some odd percent of public lands are west of the Mississippi in the western United States. And it would not make any sense to have bureaucrats in Washington, D.C. from far away dictate from afar and not be there to be responsive, to be attentive to people's needs. So the headline was misleading. I will say that from the Hill about this update. They say the Trump administration shifted its headquarters 
from Washington to Grand Junction, Colorado, in which critics saw as an attempt to drive out career officials. However, Interior Secretary Deb Holland said in a statement that it was important for the Bureau to have a D.C. presence, but also said that its presence in Colorado would, quote, continue to grow. She said there is no doubt that the BLM should have a leadership presence in Washington, D.C., like all the other land management agencies, to ensure that it has access to the policy, budget, and decision-making levers to best carry out its mission, Holland said. The past several years have been incredibly disruptive to the organization, to our public servants, and to their families. As we move forward, my priority is to revitalize and rebuild the BLM so that it can meet the pressing challenges of our time and to look out for our employees' well-being. Isn't the goal to look out for Western interests, not your employees? That's me. And I'm not sure we're going to get that under this administration, especially if their priority is satisfying the needs of their employees. It should be working to best steward the land, restore trust with individuals out West, and not cherry pick interests over working for all interests out West. So it remains to be seen. Certainly, I think the headline was a little inflated, so they will have a presence, but they're going to be scaling back the Grand Junction office and putting back a lot of people in D.C., Not surprising, given what is going on in other elements of the Biden administration, they're liking to govern from afar. They're not really in the field for different things. So I hope it doesn't rise to the level of kind of the distrust we saw under the Obama administration, but I'm not sure what this move will do. I don't think it's going to be a confidence booster. I think people will get naturally skeptical of this administration and their conservation agenda and maybe not want to cooperate. Doesn't mean they're going to do anything rogue or dangerous, but I think people are going to see this move as a symbolic gesture of they're not interested in working with us and they only have a certain agenda to service with elevating and and propping up preservationist environmentalists. Quickly on national parks. So in wake of the tragic death of Gabby Petito, there are certain comedians and people, I understood that this tweet was a joke, but I think it was an ill-advised comment to put out in wake of the news that this girl's body was discovered. So Tim Dillon tweeted that rest in peace, Gabby Petito, never go to a national park. And I was looking to see statistics about how dangerous national parks are. And lo and behold, from the National Park Service itself, according to CY 2014, CY 2016, their mortality dashboard key statistics, their most recent findings... The NPS mortality rate is 0.1 deaths per 100,000 recreational visits, which is very low when compared to the mortality rate of the overall U.S. population, 844 deaths to 100,000 people. Certainly because of true crime documentaries, Hollywood, and pop culture, and also just people's hesitancy to go outdoors and also just people living in cities, just the urban-rural divide, more people not really going outdoors, save for people who are discovering hunting and fishing. But just kind of the propensity of Americans to stay in cities, to be afraid of the outdoors, I think contributes to this fear that national parks, wilderness areas, BLM land, forest service land is dangerous. Don't go outdoors. You're going to die outdoors. You'll get attacked by bears. You'll get bitten by rattlesnakes. All these dangerous things will happen to you. And having read that statistic for you, you are far safer outdoors, I think, personally speaking. If you have the equipment, the resources, the skills, you're with people, a group of people, ideally, you're going to be safe outdoors. I went to Yellowstone National Park with my videographer and friend Madison. Recently, we were very safe. We didn't go on any trails off the beaten path. We were just driving through. We went to Grand Prismatic Springs. 
it is not the fault of the national parks that this poor young woman is deceased. She was what it appears to be trapped in a very abusive relationship given the evidence that is coming in. A national park didn't precipitate her death. The guy she was involved with was evil, truly evil. So don't blame national parks for the evil actions of this crappy individual. We don't stop living because of unfortunate events. It's very tragic. I empathize with the girl's family. I'm on her side in this. And she is at no fault of her own for unfortunately having this happen to her. She was trapped in an abusive relationship. You have to fault the blame to the crappy boyfriend, not national parks. So you know the statistics now about deaths in national parks, how safe you are. Just be prepared. Know the conditions. Know the weather elements. Go with people you trust. Go in a group. That's how you know you can be safe. And just be bear aware. Be aware of wildlife. Don't do anything stupid. And have fun because the outdoors is a great place. So don't let tragedies stop you from enjoying the great outdoors because you have to live. Life is short. Life is beautiful. The outdoors is therapeutic. And just seeing tragedies happen there should not deter you from enjoying and recreating responsibly outdoors. A final thing I want to touch upon. It is Clean Energy Week. And I wanted to highlight briefly an article that one of my Independent Women's Forum supervisors, Charlotte Whalen, wrote about Clean Energy Week, what fuel source that we should be considering and elevating. And here is what she says in her blog post. As we continue to celebrate National Clean Energy Week, today we turn to the most reliable, cheap, and zero emission sources of energy, nuclear power. Nuclear power is the largest source of clean energy in the United States, producing about 20% of total U.S. annual electricity. While nuclear power has a safe and reliable track record of reducing emissions, many climate activists want to shut down reactors and undermine its growth, citing largely unfounded safety issues in favor of a renewables-only approach. Because of this, America's nuclear capabilities have remained at the same level for the last three decades. Nuclear energy is a product of American innovation. I think you have to make a distinction between clean energy and renewables because there are sources that are truly clean and then there are renewables. And we have seen with recent examples this past year just the unreliability of solar and wind. And if you look at how much land is used, especially for wind turbines, oh my gosh, guys, you would have no idea how much farmland is destroyed from those turbines. It really disrupts the landscape. And same with offshore wind turbines and then solar panels. Just the When solar panels also become decommissioned, there's a lot of waste from those panels. And it's really hard to recycle those too. And those also come at the behest of fossil fuels, by the way. I also wish people would talk about geothermal. That's something really interesting. It kind of, in my initial study, resembles like natural gas extraction and exploration. It's kind of in that similar vein. So I'm hoping to explore geothermal energy too, but nuclear is something you have to talk about if you're serious about clean energy. Totally agree with my supervisor, Charlotte. And I hope you guys will check out that piece. I will link it to the show notes for you. Thank you for listening to the show. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Make sure you're following us on your preferred podcast player. We like to recommend Apple Podcasts because Apple is where most of hails from. So if you head over to Apple subscribe some episodes and leave us reviews would be we'd be more than appreciative of your support in that manner follow us on facebook instagram and twitter to never miss a beat nor a guest announcement and you can connect with me personally on my social media feeds all of the facebook twitter and instagram links that i have are all denoted by 
blue check marks. Really easy to find me. So engage with me there. I'd love to hear your thoughts. If you want to recommend yourself for the show as a prospective guest, I'm all ears to hear and sift through different inquiries. I get a lot of requests and my schedule is also quite busy. So you'll see guests come from me and I'm, but like I said, I'm always open to different guests coming on the show. 